Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westman demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. And today, we are talking a movie from 2021, trending in the U.S. on Netflix, and a cautionary tale. Don't look up, bro. Directed by Iris's boy, Adam McKay. What, what? Featuring Iris's boy, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yep. And starring Wes's chick, J-Law. How's she Wesley's chick? Aren't you all kinds of into J-Law? This is the worst Jennifer Lawrence hair movie in all of existence. You're very sensitive to haircuts. In fact, Leonardo DiCaprio's worst haircut in existence, and he was in Gangs of New York. (laughs) I can't believe that you would even spend a moment on Leonardo DiCaprio's hair with that beard. Well, he right. The beard started on the neck. No part of that beard was on his face. They really dressed him down and like intentionally they wanted to make him and I quote as bland and sexless as possible. Which was bizarre to me because they went to great lengths to establish him as the astronomer I'd like to bloop. Right. The most effective device was pairing him up with the very lovely but aptly cast Melanie Linsky. Yeah, as his wife. Yeah, just perfect wife for the type of character, I guess, they were trying to project. Uh-huh. And yet, Kate Blanchett can't keep her hands off of him. And he's got memes, and everyone talks about his great bone structure. Like, so pick a Leo here. Kate Blanchett, this is their second time doing this thing. They were also in The Aviator. And he played Howard Hughes, and she played Katherine Hepburn. Right. In similar, I guess it's kind of similar, because um, Hughes was all tore up, and Hepburn was all glam. Although I saw her name and I was waiting and I was waiting for a lot of people in this movie to show up. And she did. And I think it was the second scene that we saw with her character before I realized that was Kate Blanchett. Hopefully that was a lot of there was some facial prosthetics going on because I hope that she didn't go that fake looking. Oh, man, she was plastic AF. But she looked amazing in that dinner dress, that black and red dinner dress when she's squaring off with June Mindy. Yeah, sure. She looked fabulous. But there was a lot of interesting fashion look choices, um, interesting choices for Meryl Streep and Jennifer Lawrence as well. I was trying to get a fix on these people. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Meryl Streep, and I think Jennifer Lawrence is eminently capable. But I didn't feel like it was a terrible stretch for either of them. This feels like Meryl Streep just talking and joking. Hmm, interesting. This is the one screening that I attended last year in 2021. In the Q&A, she was saying that she loves the delicious baddie. This is something she likes to do, but it's not something that's a big stretch 
or that's different for her. And not to say that she phoned it in. It's just there wasn't a lot of reach that we know she's capable of. She played the baddie, of course, in The Devil Wears Prada, which it was much more of a character and she changed her mannerisms and stuff. And also she was a baddie in The Manchurian Candidate. I'm just saying it didn't feel like it seems like she took it easy and had fun, which I'm not sure everyone gets. You mean they didn't get that Meryl Streep was parodying really bad politicians? So Dwayne Perkins, the comedian, he talked about a gun joke and how that played differently where he performed it. Like, uh, you know, Californians thought that guns were terrible and he'd go to Texas and they'd be like, yeah, from my cold dead hands. Pew, pew, pew. And I can't even remember the joke. So this makes this part not funny. But I honestly think that where this movie plays in the country, people would conveniently overlook that this is, in fact, a climate change movie, just kind of appropriated using an asteroid. But I think that people would be all about the Jonah Hill and Meryl Streep characters. They wouldn't get the joke. They'd actually be rooting for these characters as cowboy-esque, renegade politician types. Yeah. I got the joke. That doesn't mean that I got the joke right away. And it wasn't until I realized, and thankfully this was before she put on the trucker hat at one of the rallies or whatever. Once I realized that in some ways she was a parody of Trump and her just willful disregard of, you know, facts and science, then I got it. And then that was reinforced by the hat. But for a good while there, I didn't know what was going on in this movie. I could not wade through the parody to find out where my allegiance was intended by Adam McKay to be. Hmm. Like, is it a delightful tongue-in-cheek satire and a commentary on public figures and politicians and social media and stuff? Or was it a horrifying tragedy made even scarier by the theater of media presentation? Well, kind of a double-edged sword. I think in a more neutral sense, it was a commentary on our human superpower of, of denial. <laughs> As a means of ironically self-preservation? Don't take <laughs> um, the, uh, we try to keep it light around here for the next 24 days we're going to be alive. I mean, what else can they really do? Like, yes, they should have mobilized. Yes, they should have not called off the, the Benedict Drask, Ron Perlman-led space adventure. Uh, you know, they probably could have taken many more measures to stave off mass extinction. But when something's inevitable, when our end is imminent, how much different is that than our ultimate end that we all face? What I expected was that they would, in the face of incontrovertible evidence that things were about to go very badly, if they didn't want that information to be disseminated among the public, if they didn't want to start a panic, they should immediately arrest those people. Put him up in a thing with uh, in Trump Towers with armed guards at the door. You have pertinent information. We're trying to figure out how to spin this so, so people don't freak out. And if the world does survive, we'd like to be reelected. We, I'm sorry we can't allow you to talk to anyone. And if it was the public that they were trying to keep that information from, I could understand it. But the first stop, the first hurdle that they had to clear, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, that is was getting the right people to believe that information, which they clearly didn't. I don't know if I agree that that was their first step. I mean, every single person in this world, well, nearly everyone with an electronic device, has a global megaphone from which they can disseminate their information. You know, it's maybe not always the most effective or considered the most verifiable, but... So I didn't realize until my second viewing of this film 
that they didn't immediately, that Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence didn't immediately go to social media because what they had was actually classified information. And I think that their project or whatever it was they were doing at Michigan State wasn't theirs to share necessarily. When he, when they approach the first woman, the, the one that Meryl Streep dismisses of so deftly, when she's like, I'll resign in shame tomorrow, Junie, Ugh. or Janie, or whatever. Like, that was awful. But, you know, when they contacted her, it was very clear that there was protocol, which is the only reason why I can think they didn't go immediately to social media. I mean, of course, they don't want to cause like mass panic and hysteria. But after that point, the logic starts to break down for me. When the White House asks you to sit tight, if you're going to go rogue, you don't have to go to a newspaper or a public talk show to do that. If you're going to go rogue, just go to social media. Yeah, that's what the actual rogues and the dismissers of science tend to do. Because that information can be so widely disseminated so quickly, as if it catches on, that is, then it becomes either something to be feared, something to be taken seriously, or dismissed as fake news and blown up like Jennifer Lawrence's we're all going to fucking die meme sticker on the skateboard and stuff. <laughs> on Timothy Chalamet's skateboard? Right. Oh, man, I have to say, Timothy Chalamet kind of stole the show for me. I don't know. He always seems like the heart-torn British gentleman <laughs> in Little Women <laughs> or the heart-torn sand prince in Dune or whatever. And so when he's like, what's up, bro? It's like, it's weird for me. It was so great. Let's take a selfie, bro. Like, he was such a great, unexpected bro dude. But yes, so many people in this movie that made it very exciting. I was very excited to watch it. And I wanted to watch it very closely because you and I recently discussed the big short. I didn't get it the first time at all. And I wanted to make sure that I understood what Don't Look Up was. And yes, he did employ the offbeat editing that you would expect. There were lots of snakes and gophers and cows and rivers. Hummingbirds. And stuff. Yeah. I don't know, like a David O. Russell movie that Jennifer Lawrence is regularly involved in. And I think that Adam McKay said that, that she was an obvious pick as a truth spitter. Like she has played a number of truth spitting characters in David O. Russell movies like Silver Linings Playbook, like Joy. And I'm not saying she was typecast per se, but I think I, I think it's clear why Adam McKay chose Jennifer Lawrence for this particular role, you know, beside the fact that she's a huge bankable star. And I think she is capable in that way of delivering that information. And then it would be when it was just so farcical and and they decided that they were that at every turn they were going to be completely override Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio until the moment that they each had their opportunity to stand up, look straight in the camera and be like, we are all of us 100 percent going to fucking die. And people were like, wow, that's she's nuts. It didn't. <laughs> makes sense to me. I didn't understand how everybody from the president to the talk show hosts could be so dismissive. Right. And I think there's a lot of stress that comes from that. If you're siding with the Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio characters at all, it's very stress inducing that so nobody much. will listen to them. And you spend a lot of time, you spend a large part of this movie being very uncomfortable because you're like, it's like you're screaming and nobody can hear you. And I, but I think the filmmakers were perhaps also making a subtle commentary on tone policing. Like if they didn't have the right delivery, right? And Dr. Oglethorpe was judging them from his living room couch. Don't go there. 
don't do this. this is, you know, he's like tone policing them that they have to have the right delivery in order to convince people that the world is going to end. If there's anything that you shouldn't be tone policed for, wouldn't that be the message? I would like to think that is the case. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's involvement in this movie is undoubtedly because he's a huge climate change advocate. He's, uh, you know, showed up at his premieres and Priuses and all this stuff and at the Oscars and invested in the documentaries about it. And so climate change has been swapped out for the asteroid. But... Uh, the problem here, it seems much more imminent and serious, especially when at some point he can look up and point to it and be like, hey, all you people who didn't listen, it's right there. But the idea of climate change is a bit more subtle, ambiguous, undefined for a lot of people as the problem in The Big Short was. Financially, this is going to be a house of cards. All the dominoes are going to topple. And, you know, the housing market crash, the stock market crash is going to affect the global economy. And people are like, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, so they were kind of like rubbing their brows and their temples amidst people having fun and living life and refinancing three to four times and stuff, knowing that the end was near. But they couldn't really explain the math to anyone, I guess, because they didn't have Margot Robbie in the bathtub. But we did. <laughs> And we can see the implications of what the characters are saying in this movie, but it's a different thing that nobody listens. The Big Short is kind of insider baseball. If you understand it, you're like, whoa. If you're on the inside and if you're smarter, maybe you can avoid total financial ruin. But there's no getting onto this one. Because they swapped climate change for the asteroid, everyone is going to die. And nothing matters. And it was hugely stressful that the only people who had a shot at doing something about it were like, just hang tight. They didn't immediately like barge in and be like, Madam President, this is information you got to hear. They like totally waited and got charged for snacks and then then didn't even get to see the president. And they were losing a day in the limited number of days they had before the whole earth was going to be destroyed. They hammered that charge for snacks joke a few too many times. J-Law got me every time. It was funny, like, but you saw it coming, right? No, I didn't see it coming. It wasn't always funny, but every time I did not see it coming. I was, I was confused and frankly concerned and really stressed out. I was like, why is the president so dumb? Well, I mean, is it really that far off? That didn't make it funny. It made it all the more horrifying for me. It did make it really horrifying. I can't, I can't decide what was more horrifying. Her long 20-something blonde curls or her saying, God, and I thank you for your service. <laughs> now, that was a deliberate choice. The Hillary Clintons of the world, the Kamala Harris's have the tidy, no-nonsense haircut. But these uh, Republican uh, ladies, they tend to have the long, flowing locks. Or the bulbous, like, updo. Yeah, and she was like, don't make it too pretty. Like, she, I like this weird flat thing. So that was deliberate. Yeah, and inspired hair, makeup, wardrobe choices. And it was spot on for the kind of person that she was portraying. The riff on celebrities was really spot on. I think that Ariana Grande had a cameo that was actually substantial and funny. I mean, obviously she played an Ariana Grande type character, but that doesn't mean she was dumb or just the basic pop star. And that, I guess, is kind of the deception. As dumb as these people looked, everyone, I think, gave a really good performance. I don't think anyone was like, oh, that's terrible. Uh, Mark Rylance was a little bit Halliday in this one. I don't think he changed <laughs> up that character at all, except for the hair. And Halliday was pretty much Garth. 
but he's this aloof ultra genius who is genius can be applied to very specific areas and for everything else he's like this dude like does he can he even exist in society like around the society if he didn't have everybody around to do what he wanted like would he be able to function getting coffee at starbucks and finding underground parking No, that's that kind of stuff seems beyond his grasp. But it was it was really great how he had this kind of harmless type, gentle personality. And when he first sees the comet after the product reveal show where they're mean to those little kids, he sees the comet. He's like, oh, boy, or like he seems genuinely distraught. But then he shows up into the war room or wherever that was where they're viewing the rocket ship launch. Yeah. He like kind of wanders in. He's like, hi, Janie. And he's like real sweet. And then he, he walks out of the room. He's like, Janie, can I have a word with you? And then outside off screen or off camera, he's like, Janie, get over here. Uh, Mark Rylance has some range. It's just he tends to settle into these characters where that doesn't seem to be the expectation. He was great. And if he wasn't in Ready Player One, then, you know, maybe this would have been really fun and cute and fresh. But to me, it seemed really obvious. And what was most surprising to me was how at the Q&A, Leonardo DiCaprio and Meryl Streep and Adam McKay were like celebrating when Mark Rylance signed on. Like they were in the middle of rehearsals or something like that. Yeah, they're really taken by him. And yeah, and Adam McKay like got the message and was like, we got Rylance. And they were like all celebrating. And I was like, really? Leonardo DiCaprio and Meryl Streep? I mean, I guess Meryl Streep has to have her, like, celebrity where she can fangirl, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess so. It's just We're talking about the biggest stars in Hollywood. And But look, I don't have a problem with him. I think he played it well. But uh, I would also argue the Jonah Hill character is really obvious for Jonah Hill. Like, if someone else did that performance, they'd be like, that's such a Jonah Hill kind of role. Jonah Hill regressed in this role. Yes, but also he's very good as Jonah Hill. Like he fits in nicely. And while the things he was saying were incredibly frustrating as a performance for delivery, this is what he does best. They talked at length about the entire day devoted to his harassing and insulting J-Law's character and just his ability to riff. And he opened up Meryl Streep to be able to improvise, which isn't something she typically does. And so I think that worked for this movie. I mean, Adam McKay for the the Anchormans and stuff, there are whole other versions of that movie based on the amount of footage they got from improv. And I'm sure that there was no shortage of that on this movie. But as great as I think everyone was, kind of typical. And it was kind of aggravating and frustrating because the effect was lost on me. I I have no doubt that people are going to be like, oh, he just didn't get it. Like, aren't you supposed to get the joke? It's satire. Yeah, I get it. The satire made it more horrifying. You think that people don't get it because you didn't find it funny? I think that when Jennifer Lawrence goes off on The Rip, the television show, it's played funny. And it's not. She was telling me to my face, I'm going to die. And I'm like, oh, man, at least she she broke through all the dumbness. At least she disregarded what the hosts were trying to pull off and was screaming at people that they need to understand they're going to die. And nobody got it for some reason. Um, It made me terrified for not only the politicians who would withhold such pertinent information, but also the public that even if they're given it, uh, would totally disregard it. Understand that Don't Look Up was conceived and written before coronavirus, incredibly. And still, it matches so tonally that maybe I'm just in a different place where I have, you know, not to make light of it, but I have, there's probably some PTSD, certainly for coronavirus. We're all having a tough time. And maybe I'm not in a place emotionally to receive this movie 
movie as funny satire. It's just like too close to home. Too close to home and too willfully. It's not stupid. It's It understands, I think, a lot of people perfectly. It just, the pe- those people aren't funny and it doesn't help to see, man, we're all stuck. Isn't coronavirus crazy? Look what I have to do on a daily basis to survive. It's not funny yet. <laughs> but there were some real portrayals of yeah. how I imagine people would take the end of the world, like her boyfriend basically dumping J-Law via an article from, what was his company called? Autopsy? (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) Also a great satire for like a a zine publication. But Philip's reaction was pretty grounded. He starts hyperventilating, bowled over like, maybe that's just not entertaining. I didn't understand how the movie was supposed to make me feel. There were some funny moments. It was, you know, it's funny. Um, it's just w- which way were we expected to go with it? Uh, I wondered how long until Leo did the finger thing, and he didn't do it. And that was as distressing as anything. Because I've never <laughs> seen this Leonardo DiCaprio. I've never seen this Timothy Chalamet. Leo did a lot of trademark uh, rubbing of face and, you know, his hyperventilating scene was kind of different, but he's pretty red-faced and huffy, you know, for the first half of this movie. And then he himself gets lulled into this pretense of doing something, but kind of enjoying the ride, you know, enjoying the attention. He's got a quarter of a million followers. He's going around town with Kate Blanchett. Like, he kind of buys in. And I thought that that was an interesting choice for his character arc. I mean, he eventually comes home and they all, you know, die with some dignity. But what did you think about his interlude with the Rip host character? It was actually in keeping with what I think people, a lot of people would do faced with the end of the world, the expectations on them, their lack of consequence. You should do exactly what you want to do and none of it matters. But ultimately he comes around and goes back home and does the right thing. I don't know that that's excusable, but she takes him back anyway. I would imagine it makes everybody a little bit crazy. This is the only way this movie could have acceptably ended. (laughs) Everybody got what they deserved. The happy ending wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have sent the message that that I think this movie has to send, which is that whether you believe it or not, and however you choose to regard and spend your final moments, it's coming. And that was climate change, which is different. And I'm not sure that this, other than saying it, I'm not sure if this allegory works for conveying that message. In real life... We lack the unassailable truth of a comet in the sky that everyone can see. Look, there it is. You know, they're like, oh, the the icebergs are calving and, and can't you see it's on YouTube? Nobody cares. My problem with climate change is not that I don't believe it's true or that we're on a really bad trajectory. My problem is what do we do about it? I diligently recycle my materials like these thoughts are in my head every day. But the problem is that my fastidious recycling of goods in my household is going to do nothing to reverse the trajectory we're on. So my problem with climate change is not that I don't believe it's real. It's I believe it's kind of hopeless and I don't really know what we can do other than at a broader policy level. So I think that the analogy is apt. I think it actually is quite representative. It may not be quite as obvious or as or on such an accelerated timeline, but that's just my opinion. I mean, I think a lot of people, to your point, won't get the analogy or the allegory. 
the metaphor. I'll just throw them all out there in case. <laughs> right. How could I contribute? You do what little you can, and then you log on to see if the DJ and the pop star are going to get back together. Maybe we need the one person, the president or whoever, to step up and be like, this is our course of action. Everyone should plan accordingly. People didn't react in Don't Look Up the way I kind of needed them to for me <laughs> to find it a validating piece of entertainment. I think that as an individual, I have as much influence over climate change as I do redirecting a comet that's hurtling toward Earth. But I'm curious to know what reaction would have been satisfying or would have made this entertaining for you. The reactions should have been more severe. You know, a grim acknowledgement and consideration for this information. We need to control how it spreads because it's not going to help us if we can blow up this thing or divert its course. If everyone is freaking out and it's total anarchy in the streets anyway. Don't Look Up doesn't work as a drama. I think it has to be a comedy. And I wasn't, I couldn't jump on the bus with everyone. You didn't laugh. I laughed at a couple of the insane moments of willful defiance. I laughed at, you know, some of the delivery and and that stuff, but I was stressed and horrified pretty much the whole time. The performance most soothing or perhaps relatable for me was the Tim Timothy Chalamet performance, which is probably why I loved it so much. But I thought he was a great apostatized evangelical. He was like criticizing his parents and his evangelical upbringing. And then he was like, but I found it. I found my own thing or like I found my own way to it. And then at the end, he like says his prayer, his prayer, which is so sweet and one of the most humane in the entire film. As a young guy, he processes information that's given to him, you know, declares himself a breakthrough, a revelation. And that, I think, is the faux awareness of Gen Z who thinks they understand. And maybe that is the fault of all young people. And I sound like the oldest person ever when I say kids don't know shit about shit, right? Jeez. I mean, you should be like on your porch shaking a cane right yeah, now. Yeah, good for you for feeling like you've all got it firmly within your grasp. We're all going to die anyway. But isn't that a nice place to be? It, isn't it? it I'm, I'm sure it must be. Is it any less productive than being neurotic and irritable? I only know my way to be. And I know that some movies, even satires, they hit the right note and they boost my energy and make me feel wondrous things and not horror. This was more stressful and horrific than most horror movies for me. This one was too close, too real. This for me was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of climate satire. And so I waffled on the review, but ultimately I have to go with a whatever because I won't watch it again. I did like moments of it. But it without stellar performances by a stellar cast, it would have been a real joke of a movie. I don't think there are any secrets in Don't Look Up for me to uncover on a second viewing. I can't give, there's no way, based on the cast alone, I can't give Don't Look Up a boring. I can't. These are the brightest stars in Hollywood. And there are some really great performances. I We haven't even talked about Tyler Perry, who was delightful and perhaps even the most infuriating of all characters. I will say this is my favorite Tyler Perry movie. I can't give Don't Look Up a boring. You know, Adam McKay, I think, had something here. Maybe went a little bit too far, but he, he was on to something zeitgeisty. So then what was wrong with Don't Look Up? It's kind of one note. 
they they set up the drum and they beat it for a solid two hours and 18 minutes and then everybody dies so that doesn't exactly equate to like the most satisfying entertainment experience it was a bumper sticker remember that 2020 or 2024 (laughs) vote for the giant asteroid just ended already because everything else is a shit show it was a whole movie about that bumper sticker wow um and so you know they probably belabored it a bit but certainly wasn't a waste of my time hopefully it inspires people to think twice about our custody of our lives and of the world i mean don't get me wrong after watching don't look up i went about my merry ways and really didn't think twice about it or climate change or asteroids but for what it attempted to achieve and for who is in it and gave their all to bring these characters to life i give don't look up a good there you got it that's our review on don't look up you got a whatever from wes and a good from iris Come on, you've seen Don't Look Up on Netflix, right? You have an opinion on this movie, right? Let us know, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Enjoy the rest of your lives. Uh, On that note, happy 2022. (laughs) Let's hope. (laughs) Let's hope that um, we don't have some great life-changing catastrophic event happen to us this year. One can only hope. Taking a cue from the Don't Look Up playbook, follow us on social media at or whatever movies. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hopefully. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.